Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Hello, I'm Phoebe and super excited to be here tonight with Zara, especially because we both studied at Sydney Uni and I will say before we came on here, the last time I was in this room was doing my contract law exam. So grateful to be here in more enjoyable circumstances. Um, So I'm the founder of Missing Perspectives. And for those who don't know, we're a global media company that's dedicated to platforming young female reporters and content creators all over the world. And super excited to be a host for tonight and interview my brilliant friend, Zara Seidlow. Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. Tonight, we're on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past and present and sovereignty was never ceded. Now to introduce Zara. I mean, I know you all know who she is, but here's the bio. Zara is the co-founder of The Daily Oz, a social first news service that engages over a quarter of a million young Australians a day. And yeah, definitely follow them now if you're not, because that's incredible. She's a presenter, commentator, business leader, Forbes 30 under 30, and now adds author to her many hats and achievements with the release of No Silly Questions this September. So welcome, Zara. Thank you. I think your intro and achievements just grow every time we sit down. Very <laughs> like, kind. I cannot. Um, so I think what's really funny about you and I sitting up here talking about running news and media companies is that you and I actually didn't study media or journalism at uni. Exactly. I think to me says a lot about the way the news industry has evolved and that a lot of the new players like you and I and Hatta Ferguson from Cheek Media actually didn't study journalism. And I think we had very unconventional career paths to get where we are today. Absolutely. I know it's really cliche that you can connect the dots looking backwards, but like how did every role you've had kind of lead you to launching TDA? Because you were in politics. Anyway, yeah. (laughs) Start from the beginning. No, but I, I think the proposition is an interesting one because I think that when I first started The Daily Oz, I I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about not having been a journalist. I like couldn't comfortably, you know, use the term journalist when I hadn't studied it. I didn't know what made somebody a journalist. But as you very rightly pointed out, studying journalism isn't the only way to become a journalist. Um, But I think that the the journey was just that I studied um, international and global studies here and I think was always just curious And I think that it's that curiosity that fed into what I do now, but it's the curiosity that led to, you know, my brief career before that. So worked um, at Sky News very briefly, then worked in lobbying and worked for a politician. And I think that the, the common thread between all those things was a curiosity to better understand politics and better understand why and how young people weren't engaging in what I knew to be a deeply engaging space. And so um, then came the Daily Oz uh, and that has really, for me, created the opportunity to explain the news in a way that I wish I had growing up um, as a news consumer. And it just, I think the fact that I didn't study journalism, our political journalist didn't study journalism, um, he's an economist by trade, but he understands things so deeply 
but can also explain them in a way that makes sense to you and I. And that he hasn't had years of like, you know, trying to build spin or learning different ways to say it. He's just saying it, you know, how he'd want to in a conversation. And I think that's a real asset. But I also think, yeah, I think it's funny when Sydney Uni gave me a bio, it actually included, like, you're a leading journalist. And I thought that was really interesting because, like, at least I don't consider myself no, a journalist. No, I don't think I consider myself but a journalist. But I'm not sure either. why. And I think it's that I have, like, this outdated notion in my mind of what a journalist yeah. is. I think so too. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I, you, <laughs> I always struggle. There are two people that you have to be able to explain your job to, your hairdresser and your grandmother. And I think that when you can't do either of those things, you're like, oh, God, what am I doing? And um, for a really long time I struggled with this one because I was like, Saying I'm a business owner sounds wanky as hell. Saying that I'm a journalist, I feel like a fraud. So I just be like, yeah, I do some startup-y things in the news space and follow the Daily Oz. And I don't know why. I don't know why. And um, I think that I just need to work through those identities. And I think that journalism can take many different forms. And I think that's the acceptance that I've reached is that you know, I might not consider myself a journalist, but I think that I practice the craft of journalism yeah. every day. And I was reading an article last week about the role influencers now play in the news industry, and I thought that was really interesting because they're kind of, like, delivering the news, like, as long as it's fact-checked and evidence-based. And I think with us, like, with the earthquake in Morocco, um, we actually had a young woman on the ground who was a local just provide her perspective and, like, show what was happening on the ground. And it got a lot of engagement with our audience, but it wasn't the traditional way of delivering news and commissioning it either. It's just, it's changed. And I think with the decentralisation of information and of news, if you have a phone, you can document and you can share information. And if you can access the internet and you can share and disseminate that information... The barrier to entry in terms of journalism is lower than it's ever been. And so I think you're right. I mean, influencers, at the Daily Oz's early growth, I always attribute to influencers because um, we would get messages from influencers who might have been former Miss Universes or they might have been bikini models or whoever they were. And they'd say, I'm getting pressure to talk about I don't know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I am not equipped to talk about that. Can you please send me something that is factual-based that we I can share with my followers? And so even though these people didn't have a connection with their audience around news topics, they were getting pressured to say something. And so we saw very early on that people were relying on us to be able to share that information with their followers because the way that young people especially are getting their news today is for obvious reasons, very different. But even, like, I know it's not news, but statistics came out today around, like, millennial women are now going to TikTok for searching for information over Google, which was just crazy, yeah. Anyway, we have gone straight into it, but, like, going back a bit. So I think we both were avid consumers of news despite not being in the news industry. And I think to me, we both saw a similar gap in that I thought women weren't being spoken to or catered for. You thought young people weren't being catered to. And I just, how did TDA come about? So I, <laughs> I don't even know this. Yeah, story. I mean, 
it depends when you ask me. I think that I've started doing a bit of revisionist history because everything's just a bit of a blur. But essentially, um, I had always grown up caring deeply about the news and had always loved sharing the news. It was just like a, an element of myself that I could never deny. Um, never did anything about it. And then um, a friend who is now my best friend and business partner at that time, complete stranger, um, uploaded something to social media saying... Hi, does anyone want to start a new news page? I think it's going to be the next biggest thing. Um, if anyone knows my business partner, Sam, it is very much in line with his unfettered optimism to think that something that hasn't even launched or isn't even an idea is the next big thing. Um, but we went for coffee and I was the only person that responded to that social media call out. So by a process of elimination, it was just me. Um, and we went for coffee and we spent hours just talking about the news and talking about why it was that we were both the friends in our very distinct friends groups who would get asked to explain what was happening, you know, in China or what was happening here and why it was that people were showing obvious curiosity but yet couldn't quite get to the point of accessing the answers themselves. And so um, that day at a lovely cafe in Bondi, we started the Daily Oz. We um, decided we were going to post five news stories every single day on stories, Instagram stories. It was like new and novel then. And that the fifth one would always be a good news because one of the things that we hear all the time is that the news is too negative and that the news is really depressing and it's really hard to engage with the news when everything is bloody dark, which it is, and I do not blame people that say that. Um, but we wanted to eliminate that barrier and we wanted to take away that reason because just because it's dark doesn't mean you need to turn away. It just means that there needs to be some lightness throughout and that is the human experience and that is reality. And so we started it that day. I was working... Um, a full-time job. Sam was... Plus a, you were both still working. Sam was an M&A lawyer um, who very much was not paying attention to his day job and we just did it every single day for a number of years and to be quite frank, no one really cared in those Except early the days. Moms. The Except the mums. Except the mums. Mum, shout out, she's still in the front row. Um, we, we did it every single day knowing there was no one watching but we knew that building consistency and building habit was where it was at. And so we did it day in, day out. Sometimes it was 6 a.m. before work. Other times it was 9 p.m. after work. Um, but we knew that people were coming to us slowly, very slowly, um, for a reason. And so we did that. And then throughout COVID, things kind of escalated. And from there... But I was going to say, like, I followed you guys during the lockdown because you were the only newsroom actually pulling the stats together. Newsroom feels like a generous term when it was me <laughs> sitting at a desk Need wondering, pondering my future. But yes. <laughs> but like, honestly, you were the ones who were like pulling it together in a really accessible way. Um, and so I'm assuming that was like the turning point for you guys. It was a huge turning point. I always say that um, not caring about politics is a privilege and that is because if you don't care about what our elected representatives are doing or saying, it means you don't rely on the government for income or you don't rely on the government for healthcare or infrastructure. And so um, during COVID, nobody could afford not to care and suddenly every single person had to care about our political system 
and we knew that we had a responsibility there to make it as accessible as possible. Um, it also helped that we had no red tape of like an editor or a fact checker or any of the things so we have now. It was the two of us at home. Um, I'm pretty sure my brother was like the eighth person in the country who came in with COVID from the UK and it was just an absolute absurd time. But from there, we just saw this exponential growth and we did it day in, day out and we never kind of departed from that key tenant of like, we're going to make it as accessible as possible. If you can't leave your house, we're going to tell you why, how and what you can do. Uh, so COVID was really big, but then we also had the US election and we had the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was kind of these three things together that everyone was paying attention and no one could ignore. And through that, we saw the growth really of, of the Daily Oz. And I think like even today, what, like two years on, you've really stayed true to like that accessibility point. And also kind of being like the older friend who can like give you the information. I love and that. I've heard you say that quote before that's like, you don't talk down to your audience, you talk across to them. And I feel like that's such a good piece of advice, especially for like missing perspectives. I was going to say that that's yeah. exactly what I feel about missing perspectives is that it's the voice that you haven't heard before, but it's speaking to you and it, it's speaking across from you as somebody who can impart. Yeah. yeah, because I think the problem is that when we see traditional media talk to young people. Often it's the case that, um, you know, it's the avocado toast. It's the, the, the <laughs> like, not overtly condescending, well, but just... What's the latest just... one, that guy who said something around unemployment? Yes. <laughs> He's since retracted his statement about eight days too late. But I think that it's just about... I, I think the merit in what we do is that we are our audience in the same way that you are, is that we know what young people want because we are young people. And we're not young people who actually have, you know, older legacy media people holding the money buckets. Yeah. We're making the financial decisions behind the business that, you know, that includes who we advertise with, how we sponsor, you know, each part of our, our news and then also how we write our news. And so I think that it's been that relationship that we hear exactly what our audience wants and we can hopefully give them what they need. Yeah, how do you hear what they want? Like, do We you hear it so often in so many ways. <laughs> Just in the DMs. Yes. So I think that being social first is extraordinary in so many ways because you feel so connected to your audience all the time. Um, but it is this 24-hour feedback loop. So you know, we can put up a post and know very quickly what people think about that. And we've also, we realised quite early that that was a huge superpower. And so we started rolling out surveys and polling. Yeah, And, you know, that. so often we say, oh, young people think this or young people think that. And it was just this attempt to actually quantify and have some sort of rigour behind what we were saying. And so, you know, during COVID, we would get upwards of 60,000 responses wow. to a poll. Um and we still, you know, on something like The Voice, have been able to survey our audience and come to the conclusion that this is what they're thinking, this is what they're feeling, this is what they need to know more about, and here's how we can plug those knowledge gaps. Yeah, so it's good you're, like, having that conversation with the audience. It's um, a two-way conversation. But was it you who, when you were going to the budget, you were, like, to your audience, what do you guys care about? And they were, like, tax. <laughs> yeah. It was, you just it had was, to become a tax expert. Yes. No, they, um, they didn't, didn't give us a light answer on that. <laughs> it was, it it was, was the tax. first time we had been in budget lockup. And for anyone that hasn't been in a budget lockup, it's 
it's your worst nightmare. It's literally being locked in a room with journalists, politicians and budget papers. And um, we, it, the first time we did it a couple of years ago, it was like, how do we get to the bottom of what young people want really, really quickly? We asked them. And um, I think that set the tone of what we've been able to maintain and uphold every single year, which is really rigorous, hard news about the budget for young people. And they I care. think... Back to like the accessibility piece, there's a really good quote that I heard that was traditional media starts at season five, episode 10, in that they don't provide the context that and there's an assumed so level good. of knowledge. Yeah. And I think for us, like when we're covering news like Roe v. Wade, it's like try to strike the balance for your audience between providing enough context and information, but also making sure it's still accessible. But and really making hard. sure that you're not being patronising yeah, at the same time. Yeah. That like, yeah, Roe v. Wade's a brilliant example I think we saw such widespread coverage of the decision and very little explanation of, of the context in which that had arisen and what the role of the Supreme Court is and what the precedent was and all of that and it, it means that we're never the first to report news because we have to take the time to explain it but I think that that's far more valuable in my eyes. Yeah and do you want to start moving into breaking news? It's no no it's not our space I mean we don't try to be slow, but I think that what we see ourselves moving into in the future is more of the original storytelling and telling the stories of young people, not necessarily being quick to do so, but being first to do so. Um, we want to, you know, the next big thing that happens to inevitably a young person who is taken advantage of or whatever else it is, wage theft, we want to be telling those stories because we believe we can do it well. Yeah, no, I love that. Okay, so going back, the Daily Oz, you're now reaching like a quarter of a million young people a day, which I assume is an outdated stat because I think you're reaching yeah. more now across platforms. Mm. Um, so how did you decide to like turn your passion project on the side into your full-time job? Because I think <laughs> for me that was like the hardest decision I've ever had to make, like leaving a stable job. It's a huge decision. It was so difficult and I think it's often really glorified. I think that we so often hear about, you know, bootstrapping and you, you just got to quit your job, you got to do the hustle. Like the rea reality is I only left my job when I had the financial security to do so. So yeah. um, throughout COVID, as I said, there was quite a bit of attention and then at the end of COVID, we started getting some investors showing interest in what we were doing. And so we were able ultimately to raise capital that gave us financial freedom to be able to quit our jobs. But I mean, I quite frankly would have never quit my job if it wasn't for that. I, my risk appetite is far too low. Yeah. And I think that we really glorify it and that if you can't pay your rent, you can't be giving your all to your business. And that ultimately I think it's bullshit. So it was a decision that was made easier by the circumstance I found myself in, which was that we had investors that backed the idea that we had and were willing to take a risk on us. Um, and also having a best friend to do it with at the same time. Like Sam and I quit. M&A lawyer. Yeah, we, exactly. Helped. But we quit <laughs> our jobs on, the same, on exactly the same day. Um, you know, the first day that we decided we were going to go full time, we sat in a cafe and looked at each other and said, well, what do we do now? Like, we're, we're full-time. We've quit our jobs. That's finally are in the position to do it full-time. It's so scary. It's like, how do I occupy a whole day? Yeah. I've been doing this in 10 minutes every day and suddenly <laughs> it's my whole job and that was very daunting. And from there we just had to start building routine out of 
no experience and nothing can prepare you for a blank slate because, you know, we knew what we were doing, but we hadn't ever done it on that scale and learn a lot, make a lot of mistakes and figure it out as you go. Yeah, it's definitely the startup roller coaster as a journey. How did you decide that you thought it was the time to quit your job? For me, it was, I think, when investors were showing interest. Like, I think that was the big one. But ultimately, it was probably my mum and family who, like, pushed me into doing it. And I think once we signed a brand deal that really gave us the funding to be able to do it full-time, like, I think what you said before about you need to be able to pay the bills. Yeah. And bootstrapping can be glorified. Um, But I think it was that getting investor interest gave me the validation that I needed. Because before then, it was just like young women running this little media company. And I think with that, when you start getting people who are interested and you start feeling like a really professional business, that's when I thought we'll take the leap. But like, it's definitely the hardest decision I've ever made. Um, But it's also... Yeah, but I think it's also why I say to people, throw your five-year plan out the window. Because, like, this job we're doing now, we would never have thought existed. But we both just saw these gaps um, and just went for it. A five-year plan, never had one. Um, And I think it would have been to my detriment to have had one because you're right, it didn't exist. made it exist. But, like, going back to the start of, like, missing perspectives, I think for me, like, similar to what you were just saying, like, the news really not speaking to... Um, young people. I think for me, the thing that drives me crazy is when people say women aren't interested in the news. And I think women are interested in the news. They're just not being spoken to, like, much like the Daily Oz and what you're trying to tackle. And I think a really good example is, like, sports journalism, how you've got... It's the biggest sports category in Australia. Women have the lowest engagement with that category. But then you look at the stats within sports journalism and 83% of reporters are men. And the output of that is that 75% of the content focuses on women, um, on men's sport. Yeah. And it's just like, obviously, women are going to engage less when the content is dominated and being produced by men. And I also think that the Women's World Cup and the Matildas was such a game changer because we saw female reporters being front and centre in telling stories that matter. And, and the viewership saw, numbers, yeah, Yeah, reflect and then that. it pushed up. Like, we saw women engaging with sport. And I just think that's what we're trying to do at Missing Perspectives. And I think it's exactly what you've done with TDA, where you're seeing young people engaging with the news because they're seeing themselves in the news. And I would also add that to the myth that women don't care about news, that 85% of our audience is women. Yeah, that's and why so, we have similar yeah, audiences. And yeah, so, and, and that's not... We've never tried to go after women. We've never tried to attract women. It's not, I mean, I don't know how you do that in the first place, but we didn't do it. Um, They have naturally found themselves a place with what we are doing. And the engagement that we see and the deep interest we see is just the best antidote to that myth. So how did your audience become predominantly women? Like, do you know what it just... I mean, I think influencers probably have a role because they would speak to their large audiences about what we were doing and they were probably predominantly women. Um, But other than that, I I genuinely don't have a hypothesis. It it just happened that way. And, um, you know, we started a sports page when Sam was particularly bored one day during COVID um, that he just unilaterally created TDA Sport Um, and we thought that that might be a way that we would, like, balance the audience, that if we started a sports page and we got, like, 20,000 followers in one day and they were all women. Um, So that clearly 
women enjoy yeah. the news. But I also love what you're doing with Nike around like empowering mm. young female journalists. Mm. Yeah, so I mean trying to figure out how you can work with commercial partners in a really meaningful way is something that's very important to us because um, we're not particularly interested in just shoving ads down people's throats and hoping that they enjoy that because no one does enjoy that. And so, you know, we partnered with Nike for a female accelerator program for female sports journalists. And for us, that's a really meaningful way to have a commercial relationship with a partner that's actually doing some good. So we've had a whole cohort who just finished this week, um, who are now going out into the kind of journalism ecosystem and all pursuing sports journalism and are all so talented and have so much to offer but had never kind of had the avenues to explore to that, actually, yeah, yeah, especially that niche of women's sport. And I think that, um, you know, they deserve to have that space and to tell those stories and we know, as you said, that the storytelling is more compelling when done by the people, you know, that you're, you're talking about. Yeah. And, like, I don't want to go to town on this because it's – I could do a TEDx talk. But, like, women are so underrepresented in the news industry. Like, I think 15% of protagonists in the news industry globally are women. Like, the stats are dire and it's pretty bad in Australia too and I think – it's slightly improving, but still really low. But what I love about both of our newsrooms is that they're, like, women-led in that both of our editors-in-chief are amazing women. And, like, do you think having an amazing, like, Billy as your editor has really shaped the way your news is made and, like, speaking to the female audience? Interesting. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. I think that um, we, if nothing else, have modelled what it's like to have strong young women lead a newsroom so we're now up to 19 or 20 staff and I think that it's incredible for our new team members who are leaving uni or still at uni to see a newsroom led by a 25 year old woman who is also an alumni of here um, and I just think that it's more that it's the experience that she knows of our audience. Like uh, what I always say about Billy is that she knows so deeply what our audience needs and wants because she is that. She knows full well what conversations her friends are having. Um, and I think it's that talent that's been able to propel her career, um, certainly within the Daily Oz. Um, but again, it, it's never been a concerted effort to go and target, target women. It's women. just, yeah, it's it's just, just happened and I don't see it as an issue. I absolutely will lean into it. Um, but it was never intended. And, yeah, so going back to it, the brand that you've built, like I think a core pillar of TDA, sorry, the Daily Oz, I mm. keep saying just TDA, okay. um, TDA is trust. Like it is such a core pillar of your brand. And I was just wondering like how did that come about? And does it also mean like when you partner with brands like Nike, the stakes are a lot higher because when you partner with a brand, it's like giving them your stamp of approval. Yeah. So it's, how does that work? So trust is a very, very fundamental uh, value for our company for one reason only, that nobody trusts the news, um, that we have record low levels of trust in news and that that is another reason that people turn away. Again, we want to remove that obstacle. There is no reason why... There are many reasons why people don't trust it in Australia, <laughs> but there is no reason why moving forward new players can't, you know, smash that down. And I think that if you start from day one suggesting that you will have a transparent relationship with your audience, I think that that sets you up for success. And, I mean, we've done it in a number of ways. For us, it was that 
you know, the days that we wanted to spend the very little money we did have on Facebook ads to get newsletter subscribers because that's the way that we were monetizing because you can put ads in newsletters and we didn't want to put ads on Instagram and whatever else. We put up a post saying, hi, we were going to spend $1,000 on Facebook ads. To be honest, we really don't want to. We yeah, don't know I if it'll work. That. So if you could sign up for our newsletter, that would mean the world to us. Um, and we saw this huge surge in newsletter signups because people genuinely appreciated the transparency. But radical transparency. Yeah. Like and it's, it's not normal. But it shouldn't be radical. Yeah. There's, there's simply no reason. And I think that we have tried to do that in every way. If we mess up, we will absolutely. Oh, 100%. And we did it, we did it last week. We used, um, it was a, a story of um, a court case and we used the language of the judge that um, upon reflection was inappropriate language. It was about, you know, a certain act and uh, it was offensive to survivors of sexual assault. And we took it down and we put it up again and made clear in the caption that we had removed that and that we had, you know, we were really sorry for any offence caused and that we wore responsibility for that. And I just think, like, you don't need to hide it at the back of, you know, the... um, What's a quote in the back of a newspaper when... Oh, the little thing at the end. Yeah, the little thing, that thing. There's no no reason. Um, And, you know, we got so many messages saying, thanks so much for taking it down so quickly. But that's the thing, yeah. And I think that also helps you with your position as, like, being the friend. Yeah. And, like, being super... And I think that's why they trust you. And I think that's why... Like, it's just been interesting in the Australian news landscape. We've seen trust in media is at an all-time low. But we're also seeing the big players like the ABC struggle to engage with young people. And statistics came out, I think, like a month or so ago around the ABC's audience. And it was so interesting. And I think 8% of the ABC's flagship news audience was under the age of 40, which is wild. And you have an executive at the ABC calling themselves the Grey BC. They have a problem. Not I mean, sure if they've reached out to you for help. <laughs> they, they, there is a problem. Um, but I also think that we never see ourselves as the full media diet. Like I'm not particularly interested in someone only consuming the Daily Oz or only consuming Missing Perspectives and consuming nothing else. But a lot of your audience does only consume the Daily Oz. But I hope that – and I mean like it, we have a whole chapter in the book about media literacy and about how to actually read the news. I hope that we are actually just equipping people with the skills and – the you know I guess appetite to go out and see because for example we don't do opinion there's absolutely a pace for opinion you know pieces that's not with us but we want to give you the foundation of knowledge that you can go out and you can seek opinion and I don't want us to be the start and the finish of someone's news diet because I don't think that that's complete and you know 20 people in a newsroom in Sydney cannot give you everything that you need but we want to it, we always said it, the entree to the news diet. I don't know where it came from. It sounds even wankier <laughs> when you say it out loud than when it's written down. But, like, that's how we see ourselves, that you will graduate into an ABC viewer or you will graduate into a Sydney Morning Herald or an oh, Australian reader. you say it that way. I think that we are just – we see ourselves going after non-news people, so people that we're never going to read the like news. Like the news for non-news people. Yeah, yeah. because we're, it's – the passive news consumer that we, you know, we're on social media. So if you are scrolling on Instagram, you'll see Phoebe, my friend, and then you'll see the news. And you wouldn't have ordinarily gone to news.com.au or you wouldn't have ordinarily gone to this, but because it's in your way, you are now a news consumer. And so I hope that that then has lasting effects, even when, you know, you 
Instagram isn't the hottest thing or whatever it is that right. you have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you have the the skills and the appetite to want to continue that news journey throughout your life because it, it shouldn't be limited and it shouldn't start and finish with any one publication. I feel quite strongly about that. No, I really like that. And, like, if people want sport, they can go to, like, a female athlete project to, like, bring it all together. Exactly. No, it's interesting you see it that way because I would have thought a lot of people will stick with TDA. They do. (laughs) I don't think they (laughs) listen to me. Um, They do, and that's obviously wonderful for us. But in in terms of the broader kind of what we hope as a society we get to is that – I think you need to also seek out different perspectives. I think that the art of... Exactly. (laughs) The art of a healthy debate has been lost and I think that's because we exist in echo chambers and people aren't seeking out or trying to converse with people that might not agree with them. Um, Again, there are publications, there are places in order to seek that. That's not with us but I would encourage people to continue that journey. Mm. But it's interesting seeing, like, the bigger players trying to emulate what you're doing. Mm. And we saw the Australian launch, their youthful publication, The The Oz, Oz. which folded after a year, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what do you think – like, what do you think makes it work? Is it essentially just not being linked to a traditional news company? (laughs) I think there are a couple issues, but I think that namely it's what I said before about like even if you've got a really incredible editorial kind of group, like if you look at the Oz, there were it was all young women in that. Leading it. Yeah, yeah, leading it. Ultimately, the business decisions were not made by them though. The business decisions were made by Lachlan Murdoch. And I think that ultimately if, you know, youth news is not a quick game. You're not going to get people paying for the news straight away. You're going to have to fight for interest. It's, it's a kind of long game. And I think that if you um, are a traditional player and you don't see that revenue coming in straight away or it doesn't seem like it's working, you can just pull that really quickly as we saw with the odds. And I think that ultimately there wasn't an inherent understanding about kind of user behaviours and how long that user journey is. And so I think that had the decision-making come from, you know, the group that was actually driving the editorial, I think we might have probably, might have probably, <laughs> doesn't make <laughs> much sense. Yeah. We could have seen a different outcome. Mm. No, that's really interesting. So, okay, wrapping up, I think this is the final question. But I think we were at a dinner party one night and... We all went around and said a high and a low. You said your high was the role you felt that TDA... I thought you were going to say my low, and I was like, that is <laughs> your personal, Phoebe. Yes. Your high was the role that TDA played in the federal election last year and the role that you felt... You it played it sound like, like such a nerd that I said that at a dinner like, party, no, a social cool. dinner party. But anyway. like at... <laughs> That's okay. But the role, like how you felt you empowered young people and equipped them, and I just think the role you guys are playing and that we're trying to play is so important especially in the context of the upcoming referendum. And I think that's also why your book is so important because you're really equipping people with the skills. And, like, what are your goals with the upcoming referendum in terms of, like, upskilling and informing young people? It's a really good question. I think that um, there is lots to do. And I think that for us, we see our key role as um, 
providing as much of a civics education as possible. Like I said about our role um, during the election, we saw record youth enrolment and that was something that we were really proud of because we worked with the AEC to drive that youth enrolment um, and we ran a big campaign with them around that. And so for this, I think that there are so many voices that need to be listened to that need to be platformed and I see our role as telling that story but also reminding people that, you know, 95% of our audience wouldn't have ever voted in a referendum before, let alone been alive at the last election, uh, last election, last <laughs> referendum, I was two. Um, yeah. And so how can we create a space where people feel comfortable to ask about what a referendum actually is, what the constitution actually is, how this happens, like the mechanics behind it. Yeah, I just think that is the part that they perhaps won't be getting anywhere else. And I think for us, that's where we can really add value alongside the storytelling that comes. Um, and, you know, we're doing a four-part series, video series on The Voice. We've got a journalist who's gone to Fitzroy yeah, Crossing to speak exciting. to local communities. We are absolutely doing as much as we can there, but I want that to sit alongside a civics education so that people can feel like they're making an informed vote in every sense of the word. No, and that's super important. Thank you so much. I'm Phoebe. Thank you, Phoebe. Thanks for coming to Sydney Ideas. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.